Stand with me if you will. Go with me to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings chapter number 18. One of the more familiar passages of scripture that we read in the Old Testament. First Kings chapter 18, we're going to read verses 38 through 40. I had the whole story that I wanted to read, uh, and uh, my print is extra large because my eyes are getting extra old, and uh, I got one amen over there, ah, there it was. And uh, I've noticed my new glasses aren't working as good as they should. But uh, when, even at that large print, by the time I got all the verses I wanted to read down, it was three pages. And so um, I narrowed that down to three verses. That doesn't mean I'm not going to preach the rest of it. I'm just not going to read it all right here at the start. First Kings chapter 18, while you're turning there to verse 38. Miss Judy, we're very sorry at the loss of your husband. We've been praying for you, and we are, we are remembering you and James and your entire family in our prayer. And Sister Jan, we're sorry at the loss of your brother. We're praying for you and your family as well. The book of 1 Kings, chapter number 18, if you found it, say amen. amen. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Amen. I'm thankful the fire fell, aren't you? Amen. Praise the Lord. I want to preach for a little while this morning, the last step to your revival. The last step to your revival. Wouldn't it be... A terrible thing to go almost all the way to your revival and stop one step too short. Lord, I pray, God, for your anointing on me to preach. God, this is your word. These are your people. This is your church, God. You love with an everlasting love. I pray, God, for the anointing of the Holy Ghost to move here. I pray, God, that you would let the power of your spirit touch hearts, not by power, not by might, but by your spirit. And God, let the seed of your word find good ground and bring forth a fruit unto harvest in our lives. God, I pray, Lord, confirm your word with signs following. Let the anointing of your spirit fill this house. I'm asking you, God, specifically for you to send conviction on hearts today. God, that you would draw us closer to you. And Lord, that you would do a work of the Holy Ghost in this place. And God, we thank you for it. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Give the Lord a good hand clap of praise as you're being seated this morning. The location of the passage of Scripture that we are using as a text this morning is Mount Carmel, the site where this noted showdown between God and Elijah came against this false god, Baal, and Ahab and Jezebel. This was a noted place in the history of Israel. The name Carmel actually means a garden or a vineyard, an orchard. It was known specifically as a place with lush vegetation, for its beauty, it was a place of abundance. And because of the beauty and the abundant crops that grew there, it became a location where people felt inspired to worship God. And so here they had built an altar to the worship of the Lord. And this altar, they thanked him for his blessings and they thanked him 
for his abundant provision and it became a place of worship between them and God as they were reminded of his goodness and his mercy. By the time we came to our text in the scripture, however, Israel had been seized by a terrible famine. This famine was a result of Israel's backsliding away from God. It became, it began, Israel did, began with shouts of victory and rejoicing at the fall of the city of Jericho. When the walls came down, they had established a foothold in the land of Canaan, and it was followed with a season of worship and a time of celebration for God had given them a land. The Bible said they were a people which were not a people. They had no place. They had no home. But now God had provided for them the land of Israel. It started with a shout at the walls of Jericho coming down, but time and Life had mellowed the zeal of God's people. Their strat, their, the enemy's strategy was to hinder them. And that strategy of the enemy to gradually eat away at their joy and their desire to serve the Lord. It was not now the time of great celebration while they stood among the rubble of the city of Jericho, but life had taken its toll. They had had ups and downs, troubles and trials. And through all of that, their zeal had mellowed somewhat. Their enemies had gradually eaten away at their joy and their desire to serve the Lord. And the strategy of Satan to hinder God's people found its fruition in the reign of Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel. Ahab had married a Phoenician princess, and Jezebel had been raised to worship idols, specifically one particular god of the Phoenicians by the name of Baal. In her native religion, Baal was their god of rain and their god of harvest, and he was central to them. Israel's turn away from God, began slowly like all backsliding does. It began with a secret altar for Baal in the palace by Jezebel, far from the eyes of the public, a private, hidden, personal altar to Baal, one that the priests were not aware of and one that the city was not aware of. It was this altar in a very personal and private place in the inner, in the inner part of her own home, in that place close to her heart, she found, a room, she found room for the worship of Baal. And then before long, only those closest to her knew that there was another altar. And then that private altar became a public altar. And now that her sin was out in the open, there was no reason to slow down. And in time, this sin spread to her family and friends, and it began to go, as you well know, that a private sin always seems to gain momentum and begins to spread. What one does in private and personal time when there's no one around, that does not always stay there. It tends to spread throughout someone's life. And that's the way it was for Jezebel and for Israel. What once was just a personal private altar now is a very public backsliding from the nation of Israel. In time, her sin spread throughout the land. And finally, Mount Carmel, this place where there was an altar for God, where they worshiped him. Now, the altar of God at Mount Carmel was, was ignored. And an altar to Baal was erected on Mount Carmel. Finally, this place became a site for Baal worship. And God was all but forgotten. Ahab Jezebel's husband became increasingly devoted to Baal. As a result, he grew, he grew cold towards God. This waxing of Ahab's faith became fixated on the prophet Elijah. Elijah began to get under Ahab and Jezebel's skin. When he would preach about repentance and turning to God, it irritated Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah would preach against the altars of Baal 
and the altars of these idols, and it would bother Ahab and Jezebel that he would challenge them and challenge their desire to worship Baal. When he would preach about purging sin out of their lives and worshiping only God, it began to chafe their spirit. Of course, that irritation that they felt was God's word convicting their heart. It was God's way of letting them know that there was something between them and God that needed to be taken care of. And when the prophet preached against sin, that preaching was not intended to wound them. That preaching was intended to convict them and to draw them close and bring them back to God. But the more that God would send his word to convict them, instead of hating the sin, they grew to resent the man of God and his preaching against their pet sin. Their sins brought a drought and a famine to Israel. This drought was a direct challenge from God against Baal, their supposed God of rain and God of harvest. God had taken pinpoint attack against this demon God. If you're going to worship this idol of rain, I'm going to make the rain stop. And if you're going to worship this God of harvest, I'm going to stop the harvest. And until you turn and repent, you're not getting rain and you're not getting harvest. God had decided it was time for a showdown. When a famine begins, it's barely noticeable. In the first few days and weeks of a real famine, there is almost no noticeable change. Life goes on as normal. But day to day, small changes begin to appear. The grass isn't quite as green as it was a week or so ago. The creeks and the rivers are now a bit narrower than they had been. The cows don't produce quite as much milk because they're a little more dehydrated from the drier grass. The drought is usually well underway before its effects are really noticeable. It's a similar thing spiritually. At first, it's hard to notice when you go into a spiritual drought. But as the days go by, the soul becomes more and more dry. Where there once was vibrant worship, now it takes a little more effort to keep your mind focused on praising God. Things that once were enjoyable in the spirit become less joyful, and things that once were shunned now become more tempting. The things I used to love to do in the presence of God, now they feel uncomfortable, it feels awkward to worship. It feels different. I used to be able to freely lift my hands and worship God, but now when I do, it feels like all eyes are on me. Where I used to be able to just flow in worship and in prayer and feel a closeness to God, now it's a chore and I had to work hard to keep myself focused. What's happened is you have gotten into a, se a season of drought and you did not realize it until it became difficult and became dry. Amen. Oh, yes. I was reading a book one time. The book, it's a fantastic book. It's titled, You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty. It's about a doctor who had treated people in a prison camp. And being a prisoner himself, he had no access to medicines to treat them. But they came to him anyway. And most, most of the time, his prescription was to have them drink more water because he realized that dehydration was often the start of a broken health system. And he made a comment in this book. He said that one of the great dangers of growing older is that, that when you get older, that you are usually dehydrated before you ever sense your need for a drink of water. And he said, if you wait until you're thirsty, you've waited too long. Amen. And so it is in the spirit. If you wait until you're really thirsty, you've waited too long to pray. You've waited too long to worship. Can I tell somebody, if you wait till this altar call to open your heart to God, you probably have waited too long already. This is a wake-up call from God today. Soon Israel was in a desperate condition. 
What began as a private sin for Jezebel has now spread into a famine, devastating consequences. Rather than seeing that it was their idols and their altars that had caused the famine, they began to accuse Elijah. How, listen, this is a very important point, how people receive preaching into their lives is a good indicator of their spiritual condition. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there were two men that met with Elijah. The first one was a man by the name of Obadiah. In 1 Kings 18 and 7, and I did not give this to them to put on the wall, but in 1 Kings 18 and 7, when he met Elijah, the Bible said he fell on his face. It was an act of worship. When he fell, when he had got close to the word of God, it caused him to respond with an act of worship. But in verse 17, when Ahab met Elijah, his first words were, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? When a holy man met the word of God, he worshiped. When a carnal man encountered the word of God, he saw it as trouble and irritating. How you respond to the preaching of the word of God is usually a barometer of where you are in your walk with God. If holiness preaching makes you want to worship, you're probably doing all right. But if holiness preaching makes you aggravated and irritated, you probably need an altar. If preaching about worship makes you want to worship, you're probably on the right path, but if preaching about worship irritates you, why do we always have to hear that? That's a sure sign. You need an altar. How you respond to the preaching of the word of God is a barometer of where you are in your heart. So in Israel, I'm trying my best to... Uh, to, I, got a, I got a point I feel like I have to make. I feel like I'm being driven to it. And so I'm trying my, even, even when I get to a point and I feel like, like I could, could, could kind of explore that area and push it a little bit, I'm trying to stay on point because I believe God is desperately today trying to reach somebody and touch somebody that's in a desperate condition in their soul. Can I tell you what I told the difference makers this morning? I feel like God is coming into this place today because there's some folks that desperately, this is your day and this is your moment and this is your time and God has chosen to try to get your attention today. And I don't know if he'll try again after today, so you better make sure you plug into what God's doing right now. You need to let the word of God inspire you to worship right now and not push it away as an irritant to your soul. So in Israel, there were two opposing forces, Elijah and Jezebel, the side of carnality and the side of sinfulness and the side of God. In history, Jezebel has become a symbol of wickedness, lust, worldliness, and carnality. She was, by historical accounts, a murderer, a prostitute, and an image of all kinds of depravity. In prose and poetry and movies and sermons and song, this, this, this pagan queen of Israel has epitomized wickedness. May I tell you that God will not always let one live in two worlds. For a while he'll abide one that lives in a spiritual world and a carnal world. But at some point God's going to demand a choice and a decision. And so it comes in 1 Kings 18, 20 and 21. And so Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. It was decision time. The preacher called for them to make a decision. How long halt ye between two opinions? How long are you going to be stuck trying to figure out if you want to serve the Lord or if you want to be a sinner? How many services are you going to shout on Sunday and live like the devil on Monday? How many times are you going to sing the songs of Zion in the house of God 
and sing songs of perversion and lust when you're not here? How long are you going to lift your hand to worship when you're in church but put your hand to sin when you're outside of church? How long halt ye between two opinions? Look, I don't think they were trying to be hypocrites. I honestly don't believe they were trying to be hypocrites. But I think that when they got in the presence of the Lord, they wanted to serve him, and they wanted to live for him, and they wanted to love him. But when they got out in the world, temptation came to them, uh, and they yielded. I don't think they wanted to be hypocrites. I just think they were spiritually weak. How long halt she between to opinions. And can we just go ahead and break it down right now? I know I'm not preaching to everybody, but I'm preaching to some people today that in your heart of hearts, you know you want to be saved. You know you want to live for God. You know you want to work for God. You know you want the joy and the peace that comes from walking with God. But you also know that when you get out in the world, temptation calls your name and there's things in the world you want to. The Bible said, how long halt you? Between two opinions, how long are you going to be? How long are you going to be paralyzed between two choices? You can't be a good saint because you got too much sin in your life, and you can't be a good sinner because you know too much about God, and so you're paralyzed in life. You can't enjoy the world, and you can't enjoy the church. When you're in church, you're under conviction because you know how you live when you're out there, and when you're out there, you can't enjoy sin because you know what God's calling you to do in here, and he said you're paralyzed between two opinions, and there's people in this room that spiritually you have been stuck in the same place for weeks and months and years because you're paralyzed between two worlds. God said, how long are you going to live in that position of misery? Oh God, I w- why don't you lift your hands to heaven right now? I feel, I feel heaven calling somebody. There's some folks in here that you live uh, in constant misery. You don't have the joy of the Lord because you're too carnal, but you don't enjoy the world because you have conviction, and so you're paralyzed between two opinions. God said, how long are you going to live in that miserable condition? How long are you going to live with regret? How long are you going to live under condemnation? How long are you going to live knowing that you're called to live a better life, a higher life? How long are you going to live in this low standard of life when you know that God has greater? How long are you going to be paralyzed between two opinions? And then he just puts it down to a choice of the Lord's God, follow him. But if Baal, this God that's brought drought to you, this God that's the reason for the famine, this God that's brought nothing but pain and misery into your life, he's ruined your relationships, he's ruined your your, your way of thinking, he's damaged your body and spirit. He said, if that's the God that you want, if you want the God that destroys marriages, if you want the God that brings addiction to your soul, if you want the God that breaks your, that ruins your reputation, if you want the God that makes you lay out somewhere in a ditch not even knowing how you got there, if you want to wake up and not realize what you did last, if you want that kind of God, then you serve him. God said, it's time for you to make a decision. The preacher called for them to choose. How long? How long are you going to halt between two opinions? It's time for a decision. And here's what happened. The Bible said the people answered not a word. But I will tell you that no decision is a decision. When I open this altar, you don't have to come. But by not coming, you're not, you're not making You're not saying neutral, you're making a decision. When I say it's time to pray, you can turn and walk out in that vestibule. There's some that can't get out of here quick enough. And you either have the world's smallest bladder or you're trying to get away from conviction. But when that time comes for this altar call, let me tell you that no decision is a decision. It's me, it's you saying, God, not now. I don't want it right now. 
I don't want your presence right now. I don't want your anointing in my life right now. I don't need your hand on my family. I don't need your hand on my marriage. I'll make it on my own. I'll do it by myself. I'll make my own way with it. That's what you're deciding when you don't answer a word. Your, your silence is a decision to say, God, I don't want you right now. Maybe I'll come back later. Maybe I'll come at another time. But not now. I don't want you today. He said, well, I would never say that. You say it every day when you don't serve God. Every day that you don't worship, you're saying, I don't have time for you today, God. At some point, you have to challenge the strongholds in your life. You can't always coexist with sinful ways. Anybody feel like I'm preaching right now? Because I feel like I am. Let me tell you, life is always a sacrifice. You're either giving your life to God or you're giving your life to the world, but you can't have it both ways. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. You can't serve two masters. 1 Kings 18, 24, and call ye on the name of your gods. That's what Elijah is telling the prophets of Baal. Call ye on the name of your gods and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken, good plan. May I tell you that God wants to radically show himself in your life. Amen. God wants to be more than a statue. God wants to be more than an image on a cross. God wants to be more than some ethereal being out in space somewhere that just silently watches as the world goes by, may I tell you that God wants to answer by fire in your life. God wants to send the fire of the Holy Ghost in your life and radically turn your life around. He doesn't want you to have dead religion and a dead relationship. He doesn't want you just to exist hoping that he's out there. He wants to prove that he's here right now. He wants the fire to fall in your life. God wants to answer. Let me tell you, some of you have been praying, God, I need you. God, I, God wants to answer that prayer by fire today. In the New Testament, he answered by fire with the Holy Ghost. Can I tell you what we need more than anything in our families and our lives and our churches, an old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival? The best, the very best thing for your home is for the Holy Ghost to fill your home with the fire of his spirit for your house to be a revival center. Amen. Amen. The church should not be a place where you come to get what happens at home out of your spirit. The church is a place for you to come and celebrate because you've had a move of the Holy Ghost in your home, in your family, in your house. Amen. The house should not be separated from what happens at the church. The house should be an expression of what God's doing in your life. Your house should be a place of worship. Your house should not be a place of battle. It should not be a place of conflict. It should not be a place of fear. It should be a place of worship and hope and happiness. Revival is the answer for your marriage. Revival is the answer for your children. Revival is the answer for your home, for your soul, for everything. But God's fire doesn't fall randomly or arbitrarily. There are ways to get God to send his fire. Step number one is you have to repair the altars in your life. First Kings 18 and 30, and Elijah said unto all the people come near unto me and all the people came near unto him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. May I tell you today that generally speaking, spiritual failure almost always goes back to a broken altar. Spiritual failure almost always goes back to broken down altars. Amen. I'm going to tell you one of the things I learned from the elders. Like Brother J. Frank Wilson and Brother R.C. Mays and Brother O.T. Cottrell. One thing I learned is if you really want to be a preacher, you have to go by initials. <laughs> T.F. Tinney. C.M. Becton. That's my problem is I got a first name instead of initials. 
Brother R.B. Bingham, his name was actually R.B. That was his name, R. Period B. Period. He went into the army and he put it on the list, R.B. Bingham, and they said, we need your whole name, not your initials. So he wrote R only, B only. So his name tag said, Ronely Bonely. I didn't make it up. Now, whoever told me might have, but I didn't. I remember, I remember preaching for Brother R.C. Mays, and he'd get me up early in the morning and go over to the church to pray. And I, would, I remember him, him praying, God, glorify your name. Glorify your name. God, do something today to glorify your name. But I, I remember in conversations with Oh, his answer to almost everything. When people would come to him with a question, he would ask them, have you prayed through about it? When people came asking, hey, we want to get married, he asked, he'd ask him, have you prayed through about it? He told me a story about how he took a couple to the altar and he made them pray about getting married till they could pray through. And if they couldn't pray through, he wasn't going to marry them. Have you prayed through about it? Can I tell you that almost all failure spiritually comes back to a broken down altar? Amen. We need to be people of prayer. If you're having trouble in your walk with God, you need to rebuild your altar. Amen. If you were serious about really getting what you needed from God, you'd set your alarm a little early. You'd stay up a little late. You'd push something out of your way. You'd get rid of a hobby. You'd do something to get yourself back to an altar and rebuild it because the first step to any revival is rebuilding altars that are broken down. God, teach us to pray. God, we need your help. God, my marriage needs your help. God, my children need your help. God, my soul is dry. I need you. You got to rebuild the altars in your life. Elijah understood that if they won't help me build an altar, then there's no point going on. If they won't help me build the altar, then God's not going to send fire. If they won't help me build an altar, then God's not going to stop the famine. So he said, come on, come close to me. And he called him and the people came close and he said, help me rebuild the altar. May I tell you that your pastor is not a get out of jail free card. Your pastor is not an instant solution. Uh, let me tell you what I need. When you've got an issue in life, I need you to come close and help me rebuild your altar. If you won't rebuild your altar, you won't get the fire back. And if you won't rebuild your altar, you won't get your famine ended. Uh, I can't preach you out of a famine. you got to pray your way out of it. you got to rebuild the altars in your life. Come on, you got to build your prayer life back. Oh, somebody ought to throw their hand to heaven and say, God, help me. God, I need your help as part of building an altar. The altar of God was broken down when they built the altar of Baal because you can't maintain two altars in your life. You can't maintain an altar for Baal and an altar for God at the same time. Either prayer will chase sin out of your life or sin will chase prayer out of your life. So the first thing they did was rebuild an altar. I know what you're thinking. God, I hope there's not a whole lot of steps to this revival because we'll be here all day. The second step, you have to prepare to hold what comes to the altar. The Bible said in verse number 32, and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. So you get the picture. He builds this altar, and then, whether with a tool or with his hands, he digs a trench all the way around the altar. Digging that trench is the process of moving earth out of the way so that something has space to flow into it. With that dirt there, the water that he's going to put on the altar is just going to flow away and it's going to be gone. So he's got to create space for the water by moving earth out of the way. Can I tell you that the process of moving stuff out of your way, if you're going to get what you need from God, someone has to do some trench work in their life. 
You have to remove some things that are keeping you from holding what God's going to pour on your life. you got to move some earth out of the way. Can we just say it how it is? Some of us have too much worldliness in us for us to really get what we need from God. And if we really want revival, we got to do some earth work. we got to move some stuff out of our way so we can have room for what God's getting ready to pour on our life. Amen. Sometimes you got to just move stuff. You say, well, all that preacher ever does is preach against stuff. I don't just preach against stuff. But what I am saying is the Bible says that we need to remove two things. The weights and the sins. It, the answer to everything in your walk with God is not, is this a sin or not? Can I do this and still get away with it? Can I do this and still be all right? Some things may not be sins, but they may be weights to your life. And it's hard to run a race with weights on. If you're really going to be successful in God, it's not only, God, is this a sin, but is this a weight for me? Is this something that i got to shed because it's taking too much of my time and attention? you got to move some stuff out. You gotta, somebody needs to dig some trenches in their heart right now. Turn my, gotta, my clock's running, but I, my, my screen went blank. Now I know how long I've been preaching, so now I'm going to make my screen blank again so I can't see. <laughs> Step three, you got to get some stuff in order. Verse 33, and he put the wood in order, cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He put the wood in order. Everybody say, he put it in order. If your life is full of chaos, you're gonna have a hard time keeping yourself godly. You gotta get stuff in order. Praise God. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you want me to pastor you or just preach right now? Do you want me to pastor you? If you want me to pastor you, then I'm going to tell you, you've got to get some stuff in order. You've got to make some decisions in life on what really matters. You better prioritize the house of God in your life. You've got to get the wood in order. If you're going to have a fire, you've got to have your wood in order need to arrange your life to be conducive to the fire, not conducive to chaos and drama and mess all the time. Hello, somebody. Amen. You got to build things, systems in your life that keep chaos out. And what keeps chaos out is discipline. Amen. Don't you wish we had an evangelist today? Discipline will be, bring order to your life. If you wake up on Wednesday and you know I'm going to be in church tonight, that brings order to the wood in your life. It sets stuff in order. When it starts coming towards the end of the week and you got, and, and, and you got to make a decision, am I going to the house of God or am I going to go do something else? you got to put stuff in order, but you have to prioritize the things that cause the fire to fall in your life. Some of you prioritize hunting and fishing and ball and money and all kinds of activities and hobbies and you go here and you go there and you're always off somewhere and you never prioritize being faithful to the house of God, that's why you have chaos in your life. And I can tell when people are backsliding because they start missing services they used to come to. Put the wood in order. Praise God. Verse 36, I'm moving on. I don't really want to, but I am. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things 
at thy word. God, when you spoke to me, I did what you spoke. I didn't just hear it and push it off for next week and next month and next year. I didn't just, just hear it and say, man, that'd be awesome, but I'm not ready for that right now. God, when you spoke it, I did it. God, you gave me instructions through your word. And when you spoke your word, I did it at your word. So God, I've done everything that you said to do. And God, because I have fully obeyed your word, I have an expectation. I can expect you to move, God, because I've done everything you've said to do. God, when I pray this prayer for fire to come down, I'm not going to have to say, God, I did this, this, and this, but forgive me for leaving this out. God, when I pray for fire from heaven to fall and I pray for this revival to start, God, I'm, I'm not going to say I did this and this and this, but that I didn't feel like doing. And, but so, God, you just go ahead and let your mercy cover that one and go ahead and send your, God, I've done everything that your word said I needed to do. When you spoke to me, I obeyed the word, so now I have an expectation for revival. May I tell you that if you want to be able to stand before God and say, God, now send the fire, you can do it if you've obeyed everything that God has spoken to you through his word. Amen. When you obey the word of God, you have an expectation for God to move. When you've done what God said do, you can expect him to move. And here's what happened. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me. Verse 37, that this thy people may know that thou art the Lord, God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then, everybody say then, Amen. the fire of the Lord fell. Woo, glory to God. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm right up against your hunger impulse, aren't I? Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God took all of it. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. God showed up, the fire fell, and God took everything on the altar. Amen. He didn't just take a little bit, he took everything off the altar. This demonstration of God's power was just the beginning of what God was wanting to do for them. Amen. Now my introduction is done. Hallelujah. Too many people go until they get an experience with the fire. They get a touch from God, a powerful experience in his presence. And then they simply go on and go back to life as usual, just like they were living before the fire fell. May I tell you that when God sends a great experience with the Holy Ghost, when God sends his fire, it is not intended to be kept, to be kept just at that one moment, but there is one more step to your revival. I've seen people come and get a mighty touch from God in the altar, turn around and walk out and go right back to the same way they were living, the same thing they were doing, going right back to the same habits, the same weakness, the same up and down, the same old, same old. But I'm going to tell you, it's because they stopped one step short of their revival. I've come this morning to preach the last step to your revival. Is anybody tired of just getting an experience and then going back and it being like it was? Anybody tired of feeling the Holy Ghost in the altar and going out and it going right back to the same rut that it was in before? How many like to see the last step to their revival? The last step to your revival is bloody. The last step to your revival is violent. The last step to your revival is a work. But if you're going to really get your revival and it's going to stick, you got to kill some things in your life. Praise God. Amen. You can't just get a touch and go out and pick the same stuff up that you brought in. you got to kill some stuff. 
Those prophets of Baal are why you're where you're at. Those prophets of Baal are why you're cold and in a famine and dry and dead. Those prophets of Baal is why you are a mess. And if you don't kill them, you're going to go right back and build another altar. There's some things you just got to get out of your life. You know I'm not talking about killing people. You don't know that. and I can't help you. For them to have the last step of their revival, there had to be a killing. The things in their life that was inspiring them to be sinful and carnal and worldly had to die. You need to kill some habits. You need to kill some mindsets. I'm going to ask your forgiveness before I say it, but I'm not really sorry. You have to kill some relationships. If you can't hang out with some people and be saved, then don't hang out with those people. If you have friends that try to get you to sin and backslide and be carnal and worldly and miss church, then they're not your friends. You need to kill those relationships. You need to kill the things that inspire you to worship the bales in your life. Some of you need to go home and clean out your closet and your music collection and your video collection. And if you can't control your phone, then don't have a phone, but you'd rather be saved. You gotta kill some stuff in your life. If you don't kill it, it's gonna come back. If you don't kill it, it's gonna raise up again. If you don't kill it, you're just gonna go back. You need more than an experience with fire in the altar. You need to slay some things in your spirit today. It's the last step to your revival is learning to get stuff away from your life. Oh, lift your hands all over this place today. Oh, God. It's a value judgment. It's a value judgment. I'm going to say something right now that might make some of you think less of me, and if you do, I don't care. I got vaccinated for the COVID-19 virus. I'm going to tell you why I did it. Because my heart is in world missions work. And I didn't want to get tested every two days. If you don't want to get it, that's your business. I'm not making you. My wife wouldn't get it if they held her down and tried to jab it. That's her business. That's my business. I made a value judgment. But I thought, well, if I grow a third ear, at least I got to preach overseas for a few more times. I figure, God, if they can trust you not to get it, then I'll trust you to keep me from dying from it. Your business and my business. You keep to your business, I'll keep to my business. But I'm making a point here. Here's the point I'm making. The point I'm making is I made a value judgment that for me to live the kind of life I wanted to live and be able to go and travel and preach for missionaries and travel around the world and do what I feel like God's called me to do, then I made a value judgment that if it takes five years off my life, that's, that's, that's fine with me. If I get to do what I want to do, serving God and working for God, I made a value judgment, and that was my decision. I, I weighed the options. I made a decision. I'm not preaching for or against the, 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 the I started to say the virus. I'm preaching against the virus, I'll tell you that. I'm talking about the vaccine. I made a value judgment on the kind of life I want to live and what I got to do to live that life, okay? What I'm saying is there's some people in this room that spiritually need to make a value judgment. You need to decide if the things you've been doing is worth what you've been going through. And the things, the way you've been living is worth where you're at spiritually. And there's a value judgment. You got to decide, I'd rather be saved than anything. And if I got to do this to be saved, then that's what I got to do. Stand with me. I, I feel like preaching a little bit, as you can tell. Let me tell you, there's some things that when I, became, when I got in church as a teenager, there's some things I quit doing that some of my friends didn't quit doing. Not because it was a sin, but because I knew it had a hold on me. 
And even though it wasn't a sin, it distracted me and my attention from what I needed to be doing and how I needed to be focused. I used to play basketball every night. Every night after work or after church, we'd go play ball, but I found that it started hindering my prayer life and hindering my study. And so I decided I was just going to play two nights a week. And, all, and look, I was young. Now I don't play any nights a week. As a matter of fact, I don't play any nights a year. That's how spiritual I got. I mean old I got. And it wasn't anything wrong with it. I had friends that went and played every night. And as far as I know, they're living for God. But I had to make a value judgment for the kind of life I wanted to live. And so I made a decision to put away that stuff even though it wasn't wrong. And so if you're always asking the question, is it right, is it wrong, is it a sin, is it not? You're asking the wrong questions. Your question ought to be, will this help me get closer to God? Is it a weight to me? Is it something? And if it's not something that helps you serve God, you need to get the bail prophets out of your life. It's just a value judgment. It's a decision. You can go out. You can spend all your money. You can go buy all the loaded teas you want. You can go buy the, 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 the $8 Starbucks. You can spend all your money on everything you want. And then when you get old, you can sit there and you can eat crackers because you won't have nothing left. It's a value judgment. You can go spend all your money. I don't know how much money you got in your wallet, but if you give it to me, I promise you, you won't spend it. You can go spend your, all your money on whatever you want. Right now, you can spend it. But you spend it all, you're probably not going to Israel. We have this conversation on a regular basis. You can spend it. But you're making a decision for now or may. Let me tell you, there's some things that we need to get some control of in our lives. Am I doing any preaching right now? That you just need to get some control of and decide, this is a value judgment. This is the life I want to live. And so it may not be wrong, but there's some things that I, when I leave here, I got to get control of some stuff before it gets control of me. It's the last step to your revival. Your hands are lifted all over this place. value judgments right now. I got to get control of some stuff. I got to make some decisions. There's some things I got to get in order because I need the fire to fall. You wouldn't be in church today if you didn't want the fire. The question is, how bad do you want the fire? Do you want it bad enough to repair an altar? Do you want it bad enough to move some stuff out of the way? Do you want it bad enough to put some stuff in order in your life? Do you want it bad enough to sever some influences on your life? God, I ask you, Lord Jesus. Oh, God, I ask you, Lord, help us to make the value judgments. The altar's open. I know I see a lot of folks, a lot have already come up here, but there's some more that God's dealing with your heart about some things. And you don't necessarily have to come and lay down on the altar and cry and holler, but you need to you probably do need to make a public step out and say, I'm getting some stuff in line. I'm prioritizing some things. I'm not going to just stop one step short of my revival. 
I'm not just going to get a touch this morning and then go back. I'm going to sever some things off my life. I'm making some decisions on where I go and what I do. taking that last step to my revival. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, God, for these sweet people that have allowed me to preach to them. God, they've allowed me to speak something into their life. God, I hope that they've taken it as Obadiah and rejoiced that you spoke and not as Ahab, as a man of God, troubling them. But God, I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, God, I... I can't make anybody take that last step. But God, I'm asking you, Lord, for your anointing and for your mercy and grace to be in this place. You are a healer and you are a deliverer and you are a helper. And God, you're merciful and kind and just, long-suffering and gracious. And so God, I pray in this place right now. Come on, can you lift your voice? Can you pray your own prayer right now? Can you pray your own prayer here? Not my prayer, but your prayer. Only you know what that last thing that has to die in your life is. Go ahead and sing it, folks. It's a lot easier to pray out loud when you don't feel like everybody can hear what you're saying. God, I'm prioritizing the right relationships. I'm prioritizing the right things in my life. I'm taking these prophets of Baal that have got me in the mess I'm in and I'm laying them down at this altar. The things, the habits, the rituals, the lifestyle that's got me where I, where I am right now. It's caused me to be weak and weary and dry and frustrated. No joy, no peace, no happiness. It strained my marriage, it strained my children, it strained my senses, it strained my mind. I'm not going back to it after this, God. I'm laying it down.
person behind you would think about you but give God everything right now let go of your pride let go of your insecurities right now and decrease before the Lord so he can increase in your life you've been praying for increase you've been desiring increase you've been desiring breakthrough but it will not happen until you decrease and you give God everything right now come on why don't you decrease why don't you surrender right now surrender God I make decision to surrender whatever you want in my life. God, I decrease. I decrease.
why don't you lift your hands, lift up your voice, and praise God for the victory right now. Come on, praise Him for bringing you on that next step to revival. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God, we worship you. We thank you. We thank you for changing us today, God. There have been people here that have had life change. They've made life-changing decisions, Lord. We thank you, God, for what you've done in this place. We give you glory and honor and praise, God. We worship you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Clap your hands, all you people, and give God a shout of praise. 